Welcome to Miked Up with Chiral Podcast, where I'm your host, Brandis Field. And I'm your co-host, Tim Bertelsman. And you're tuning into the one and only evidence-based podcast made by chiropractors and for chiropractors. Here's how it works. We'll have a new clinical topic that we dive into each month, and you'll leave with practical skills that you can apply right away. Well, that's contingent on who's giving the advice, and you'll want to take mine. <laughs> Let's dive in. All right, welcome to Miked Up with Cairo Up. You got Tim and Brandon here. We have a special episode for you today. Uh, today's podcast is going to be a extremely valuable learning lesson for anyone who wants to learn about carpal tunnel syndrome. We're going to discuss six effective treatment methods you can use to alleviate symptoms associated with carpal tunnel syndrome. Those are your patients in your office all the time complaining of numbness and tingling in the first three digits. We're going to talk about who we can treat. Uh, this is going to be extremely valuable for those people with any kind of wrist pain, numbness, tingling, anything going into their fingers, and then also differentiate, is this truly carpal tunnel syndrome? We're going to discuss uh, some of the causes and the things you can do to help eliminate those causes associated with one, putting them in pain, or also uh, preventing them from getting better. Uh, we're going to discuss, uh, most importantly, the things you can do in your office and the expectations that you can provide to your patients uh, when they're in your office with carpal tunnel syndrome. And then we're going to give you the expected results and the things that we see in ChiroUp. They're going to help these patients um, kind of give them an idea of how long this is going to take in your treatment visit. So overall, this is going to be a podcast on carpal tunnel syndrome that's going to give you some insight and the best treatment methods available. Uh, once again, I always encourage you to listen to the whole thing. We're going to give you some, uh, some valuable clinical pearls at the end. Uh, they're going to improve your and your patient's quality of life. Uh, this is going to be one that for yourself, if you like it, make sure you follow us. Um, for, for us, if you could leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. And uh, if you care about your friends, uh, share it with them. Uh, this is one of those things that I think are going to be, this is a podcast going to be valuable for all the people and all the listeners out there. Uh, so let's dive into this one. I've got a, a pretty good one that I, I saw coming into my office. I'm going to let you take a guess at it, Tim. Can you guess the name of my patient that came in yesterday? Uh, she's 55 years old. Uh, she came in the office. She was actually hobbling. She didn't walk in the office. She was hobbling in the office and she was leaning slightly forward and to the right. So are we looking for just a full HIPAA violation or just a, no, a no. first name? Yeah. First name. Uh, let's go with Jane. Eileen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you're going to have to excuse Dr. Steele. He was kidnapped a couple of years ago by mimes and they did unspeakable things. So sense of personality and sense of humor a little bit off, but I think we better get going on carpal tunnel syndrome. It's so funny because you don't like it when I tell my dad jokes. And my oh, that was a joke. My family actually does not like it when I tell dad jokes, uh, which is interesting because he always laughs. All right, so what, what's happening in, in practice? The good news is this is, uh, this is the time of year that we tend to get pretty busy, that everybody is more active, that winter is long over. We're moving into spring. We're getting into almost summer now, and that means days are longer, so people have more hours to bang themselves up, which means they're going to be in our office more. Uh, what are some of the things that you need to think about when we're getting busier? What do you do, Brandon? My biggest problem is my capacity. And unfortunately, when I start to get busier... That's not your biggest problem. <laughs> I've got many. Uh, but when it comes to the treatment room, one of the issues that I have always had in practice is that when I start to see the patients start to line up, um, I do cut treatment plans short. I'm like, I don't have... I don't. It's, it's a mental thing, a psychological thing that I don't think I have enough time to see them again on Wednesday and Friday. Uh, so I start to cut my treatment plans short. And unfortunately, that leads to a not a very scalable 
product, which is which is me, which is the business. So I would say that uh, one of the issues that I have is uh, sticking with the treatment plans, and that's not for me. Uh, my treatment plans are not a business decision. It's a clinical decision. Um, I'm actually hurting my patients by releasing them early. Um, so if they have a condition that requires so much care, so much time, or so much rehab, I need to make sure I honor that. Um, so sticking with that is uh, is one of my biggest problems, and um, and I've just tell myself over and over again, uh, listen, this is for the patient. Uh, they need to be coming in at this frequency uh, and we're going to get great results. Yeah. Unfortunately, we as providers are almost always the limiting factor in our practice that it's easy to bump up anything else. It's easy to be able to have another therapy modality or to be able to have a little bit larger hard drive on your computer. But what we have to continually ask ourselves is what is the limiting factor? If you think of your practice like a plant, is the pot big enough? Does it have enough soil? Is there enough fertilizer? So looking at every aspect, does your waiting room have enough seats in it? Do your hard drives have enough space? Do you have enough staff to make that happen? And most importantly, you, the biggest issue is your time, that that's the one thing, that's the only thing that we have to sell. And it's the one thing that gets consumed the easiest. So constantly saying, how can I be most efficient in that process? And realizing rather than cutting those patients out early, maybe it's time to add an associate, always making sure that your pot has a little bit of room to grow, that it's not just holding what you need today, but it's big enough for where you want to go tomorrow. That's an interesting statement. When I first started with, uh, with uh, Dr. Burlsman, this is, uh, what, 15 years ago or so, uh, one of the things that, that happened that I wasn't a big fan of is that uh, two, maybe three years in, you're like, let's get, a, let's get an associate. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was like, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 80% busy. Uh, I still have 20% left to, to go. Um, and that, that removes money out of my pocket uh, that I need to be seeing those patients to make sure I'm at 100% busy. Uh, quickly, I realized uh, for the first time, Dr. Bertelsmann was right. And, uh, and I think that the thing that is always tough as a chiropractor is we have this mentality to hold on to patients that if you have other people in your practice that have that capacity, uh, it removes one of the biggest limiting factors. And, and now we have another a Cairo that's, that's well, <laughs> he's busier than both of us. Uh, so uh, that's one of the biggest things. Also consider uh, other people, uh, consider processes and consider equipment. Now, we just added a third traction machine to our office uh, to make sure that we have those uh, patients that are able to get the therapy they need. Yeah, that uh, those are those are essential things to remember, and that kind of takes us into our random study of the day, and that came out of somatosensory and motor research that said that home exercises that have videos tend to outperform just the printed materials, and that should not be a surprise to us that any way that we can deliver information to a patient in their terms is going to make it more likely that they're going to be active participants in their recovery. I always think back about the time you started, Brandon, about 15 years ago. I had a patient, an older patient. She was probably close to 90 at that point in time. She still worked at the college. She still worked in admissions. She dealt with students all day long. She stayed young. And this is this is a point in time that iPhones were just coming out. So I still had a Palm or a Blackberry at that point in time. And she walked into the office. She was in the waiting room, and I, I went to grab her. And she walked in, and she was texting on her iPhone. I said, what are you doing, Betty? She's like, oh, I'm texting my grandkids. I was like, oh, that's cool. That's an iPhone. Is this purple little gizmo that I had never really had familiarity with. She said, yeah, these, these are my grandkids. She said, if I want to communicate with them, I need to communicate on their terms. They don't open my letters. 
And I thought, this is somebody who's 90 years old and understands how important it is to communicate on someone else's terms. And Betty's been an inspiration for, for those sorts of decisions there on out. And we recognize at Cairo Up that making sure that patients have access. If they need a printed version because they don't have a smartphone or computer, we give them a printed version. If they need uh, something that's a little bit more mobile friendly, then we're going to make sure that they've downloaded the app. Or if they like to work from their computer, they can access them on the HealthCom uh, website. So multiple platforms to deal with is speaking on their terms, something Betty taught us a long time ago. So we've now broken HIPAA with two, sorry Betty, and sorry Eileen. But uh, Betty was before HIPAA, so that's okay. <laughs> Um, the next paper before we dive into carpal tunnel syndrome is uh, actually a Korean Academy of Rehabilitation Medicine. It's an interesting paper, though. It talks about the rotator cuff responding better to eccentric exercise, and there's always a debate on this. I don't really care either way as far as eccentric versus concentric versus isometric. Uh, the best exercise is the one the patient's going to do. Um, however, this patient, uh, this uh, paper talks about uh, people with actual uh, degeneration within the tendon that, one, they do get better and get stronger with eccentric exercise. That's not the interesting part of the paper. The interesting part of the paper is that the tendon characteristics actually don't change. Um, so degeneration doesn't go anywhere. That beef jerky, that collagen deformation uh, stays there. Then unfortunately, you're not changing that. You're actually building around that weakness. Yeah, now you're building strength um, uh, 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 within the muscles around that area. So uh, it just kind of changes your thought process that as long as the muscle's not ruptured, uh, there's still some continuity. Even if it's a full thickness, uh, you know, rotator cuff tear, you still have the ability to strengthen those muscles. So let's dive into the condition of the month. Um, so let's dive into carpal tunnel syndrome. This is one of the, and, and I would say when you're talking about the upper extremity, when we're going out on the road, this is one of the fan favorites. It always gets talked about. And carpal tunnel syndrome, while it is a localized problem, you know, as far as uh, mechanical compression of the median nerve within the carpal tunnel, um, it's due to local ischemia and it can cause a wide variety of symptoms. Uh, could be sensory, could be motor, could be both. And really what we normally find is that it starts off in the acute phase with more of our sensory problems. That's when we really start to get into those um, unmyelinated fibers, those uh, numbness, pain, tingling, or no, yeah, numbness, pain, tingling. And then unfortunately, um, if it's been there for a long period of time, we're going to start to get into some motor deficits. And this is the same thing that we see uh, with really any condition, uh, that acute versus chronic um, uh, cascade uh, or maybe continuum that we'll see. And let's go through the six most potent tools that we're going to go through to treat carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, before we do that, though, let's kind of set this outline, you know, how this, this podcast is going to go. Um, and we need to answer some questions first to make sure that we know that we're working with the right kind of patient. Yeah. For, first off, um, since we're talking about hands, do you know why you should never brush your teeth with uh, your left hand? Why is that? A toothbrush works much, much better. That's pretty good. Although I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean into that one. You ready? Uh, so this is, this is an example that I give to my patients all the time, and uh, a patient with a poor core stability, poor hip stability, whatever it may be, they're not, they're, they can't even stand on one foot, and you're, you're trying to reteach a movement, or, or maybe they want to sit, you know, with a better posture, and they say, well. I, you know, I've been doing this for a week and it just doesn't feel normal to me. So what I'll always say to that person is the, the toothpaste uh, or, to, or toothbrush analogy. It's like, listen, uh, 
we're going to use another name, John. Uh, sorry, John, uh, if you're one of my patients. Uh, John, I want you to go home tonight, and I want you to brush your teeth with your left hand. And he's like, why would I do that? I'm like, well, listen, here's the deal. If that hip hinge doesn't feel normal right now, that's because you haven't practiced it. Your brain knows movements, not muscles. And that just as simple as squatting is not easy for your brain to figure out. It's also not easy to take and brush your teeth with your left hand. So start brushing your teeth with left hand. And by the time that feels normal, that hip hinge is going to feel normal because your brain needs to understand and kind of groove that motor pattern. And that way, John kind of understands that just as much as strengthening muscle is going to happen overnight, neither is creating a new movement engram in their brain. Uh, so it kind of gives them a little bit of an understanding on terms they understand uh, as far as creating new movement patterns or new postures and how long that's going to take. Yeah, that's, that's potent advice. A lot of the things that we'll talk about in carpal tunnel syndrome are very much influenced by the patient. And we know that those influences lead to a lot of hand numbness and tingling. That carpal tunnel syndrome, the number one upper extremity neuropathy, um, we know that in Cairo Up, when we did the COP synopsis last year, we looked at 600,000 diagnoses to say how common is each diagnosis and what are the outcomes by using the protocols in Cairo Up. We saw that number one in the hand and wrist was carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, it was responsible for 54% of all diagnoses in the hand and wrist. Number two was its very closely related cousin, which we'll touch on today, that's pronator Terry syndrome. That's the imposter that oftentimes makes us think it's carpal tunnel when it's not. And pronator teres is responsible for 20%. So that means the vast majority of, of these diagnoses in the hand and wrist altogether are related to one of those two, especially when it involves numbness and tingling. So today we're going to outline who should we be treating, how should we treat them, and what should be their expectations uh, with, with carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, first of all, which of our patients are going to respond to carpal tunnel syndrome? Well, there's some predictors. In fact, Kaplan a number of years ago said that there are really five predictors to say who's not going to respond. So who may not respond are those who are over 50 years old those who have had symptoms for a long time, especially longer than 10 years. If their symptoms are constant, if they have numbness and tingling that doesn't take a break, it's not morning uh, numbness and tingling, it is just there all day. If they have a Phelan's test that provokes symptoms pretty quickly in under 30 seconds, or if they have stenosing flexor tenosynovitis, an alternate condition. If a patient has two of those, which many do, they're going to respond 83% of the time to your conservative care. But once they meet three of them, that success rate drops dramatically to 7%. And if they have four or five, the success rate in this study was zero. So when we have patients who are older, symptoms for a long period of time, constant symptoms, Phelan's just sets things off, and maybe a concomitant condition, that's not likely that that patient's going to respond. Now the good news is the majority of our patients have one or two of those. And when they present with those symptoms, those are the ones that are gonna respond. I guess first thing we need to know are what are those symptoms? It's so interesting you brought that up, though, because we see that in every single condition, that it's not so much what causes the problem, it's can the person heal from the problem. And when you, know, when you have someone who's had it for 10 years and they're over the age of 50, there's probably something they're doing to themselves that has caused this problem to begin with. Um, so symptoms of carpal tunnel syndrome are, are, there's a wide variety of things. You know, there's a huge range of symptoms. These are things your patient's going to tell you. Now, we use a, um, an intake survey system that helps us um, identify what conditions is, is possible for this, this condition. Uh, tingling, you know, numbness, you know, normally in the first three and a half uh, digits. Uh, 
uh, pain, discomfort on the hand and wrist. Now, keep in mind, when you have pain that's going into the hand, you know, we're always thinking, you know, carpal tunnel syndrome, but you may have uh, radiation of that pain going back up into the arm since we do have a nerve symptom. Uh, your long-term carpal tunnel syndrome patients, we're going to see some weakness. Uh, that's our grasp uh, if we look at that, or also our opposition if we're, uh, we're taking a look and want to create an objective measure associated with that patient condition. Uh, swelling in the fingers. Sometimes it's not visible, though. They may feel like their fingers are swollen, even though you can't detect it. So it's more of a subjective symptoms. Uh, and then also with uh, the things they have to do, like buttoning their t-shirt or uh, you know any kind of grasping activities, uh, that, uh, that ability uh, may, may, may decrease with any kind of nerve symptom. And then also this is a uh, continuum, you know, so it's going to start with uh, more of our numbness and tingling and it's going to progressively get worse. A lot of times we're going to see most of our symptoms at night, which we'll discuss as we go into the signs and uh, orthopedic testing. However, you know, what we'll find at night is people often get themselves in some awkward positions and you're going to see some more ischemic opportunities uh, that happen at night. Uh, so as far as the etiology of carpal tunnel syndrome, you know, what are the most common things that we're going to see? Um, as, as far as the things that are going to potentially trigger it off, um, we know that, that those symptoms are going to be generated when the patient either compresses or stretches the nerve. Really, all neuropathies are going to be triggered by one of those two things. Either there's compression or stretch or something bad was happening to the nerve. But most of the time, it's something mechanical. And that can be either extrinsic, like an anatomical variation. If somebody has uh, a wrist that has a smaller carpal tunnel, a lot of these patients are going to have a square wrist. In fact, there's an orthopedic test called the square wrist sign, which is so valuable we've done it a total of uh, zero times. But it is something to keep in mind that when somebody has a thick wrist where it's just a square as opposed to more of a rectangle, they're more likely to have carpal tunnel because there's that anatomic variation. A lot of the factors, though, are, are extrinsic, things that the patient is doing to themselves. The supermarket checker with repetitive hand motion, especially somebody who's using their phone or a keyboard on a constant basis. Uh, injuries can certainly cause problems through inflammation in the same way that arthritis can cause inflammation. And inflammatory arthropathies are common with neuropathies, that everything from a plantar fasciitis through a neuropathy through a tendinopathy, we have to think about an inflammatory arthropathy, especially when the symptoms are bilateral. In fact, anybody who has bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome, they have either an inflammatory arthropathy or a cervical radiculopathy until proven otherwise. And then certainly hormonal changes, anything that increases uh, swelling or blood volume in the area, that's going to be an issue. So pregnant patients are particularly predisposed to, to carpal tunnel syndrome, and they present with those classic signs and symptoms. You know, I'm going to go a little off, off outline here, but one of the things... What? I know. Uh, it's so funny because I'll, I'll write everything down, and even at the very beginning, I had a big thing that I, that I already pre-wrote, and uh, I didn't follow any of it. Tim's like looking <laughs> at me like, you you literally sat down and wrote a intro, and I, in my own words, and, and didn't follow it. Um, however, one thing that I'll hear in the treatment room is bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome. You know, and which is possible. Um, however, if you have a bilateral issue, I'm thinking spine until proven otherwise. You know, so that's one of the things that you'll hear in your office. So, you know, maybe before we get into the orthopedic test, let's go through some of the signs of carpal tunnel syndrome. Some of those, you know, pathognomonic things that maybe are associated with a condition or that, um, that you hear in the office 
that should maybe lead you down this path. And one of the biggest things is, is nocturnal pain, which I, I, we just covered. You know, nocturnal pain is a red flag. So, you know, we need to, we need to ask those questions and we need to rule that, that out. Um, however, whenever we get paresthesia in the median nerve, you know, just the first three and a half fingers that's happening at night, that's waking the person up, that is 77% sensitive for a diagnosis of carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, so that's something, you know, significant. We're going to start to see that, that we're not pumping enough blood into that area. Now, it could be just due to systemic reasons or it could be to hand position. You know, maybe they're in an awkward sleeping position. Uh, but between 8 p.m. and 8 a.m., we're going to start to see less blood uh, diving into that hand and creating that nocturnal pain or ischemia that's causing pain. So first of all, pathognomonic. It's a big That's, word. That is a big word. I use Grammarly for that. So we do webinars. I'll make you a bet here on the fly that if you can spell pathognomonic, I'll wear the belt buckle you gave me for Christmas last year that holds a beer when it flips down. And if you can't spell it, you wear the belt buckle on the next live webinar. First off, that was a great Facebook buy. I mean, you have a, I think it's an Amer it was an American flag. Um, yeah, it's either that or it has a bowl on it or something, but it's this yeah. big belt buckle. It's about the size <laughs> of Brandon's head and it's oval shaped, much like his head. And it flips down. It has a hinge that it turns into a shelf and it has this little ring that flips out that you can set your, your natty light or whatever beer you might uh, be drinking with a belt buckle of that nature. So pathogmonic you're yeah you're looking it up on your phone now that's not no even... let me see if i can spell this one your belt buckle no i, I ukle first off I, I do have the actual spelling right here in front of me um i would have never i'm guessed sorry that. you you yeah. failed for cheating um so i'm not gonna do that and and if anybody knows me um i can't spell anything uh, without grammarly on my phone and my computer um it would look like a fifth grader is writing my emails um so let's uh, uh let, let's let's avoid that one um let's talk about when it's not carpal tunnel syndrome and this is one of the um i think one of the differentiating things that helps me out the most with a hand numbness and tingling that what happens when it's not just the fingers Tim, what happens when there's numbness and tingling in the palm also? Yeah, that's that's a great differentiator because I know me personally, when I hear that somebody has numbness and tingling in their hand, um, once we can define it that it's in that median nerve distribution, I think instantly carpal tunnel syndrome, and sometimes that's not the case. The study that you'd referenced said that that numbness and tingling in the first three and a half digits uh, that wakes you up at night is 77% sensitive for carpal tunnel syndrome. Well, that means that 23% of the time, it's not carpal tunnel syndrome, almost one-fourth of our cases. And one clinical pearl that we can use to help us determine when it's not solely carpal tunnel syndrome is where is the numbness and tingling. That we know the, the fingers are innervated by the median nerve that passes through the carpal tunnel. But the palm is not innervated by the portion of the median nerve that passes through the carpal tunnel. The palm is innervated by the palmar branch of the median nerve, which actually jumps out ahead of the carpal tunnel over the top of that transverse carpal ligament and then innervates the palm. So compression solely in the carpal tunnel can't get the, the palmar branch. It can't cause a numbness and tingling in the palm. When our patient has numbness and tingling in their palm, now we're thinking something upstream. And the most likely scenario is the pronator teres muscle. 
That's the muscle up in the, the proximal portion of the forearm that pronates your hand and wrist. And when it compresses the tissue underneath it, that includes the median nerve. So numbness and tingling comes on. Anytime somebody says they have numbness or tingling in their hand, we need to look upstream. Look first at the pronator teres, and we smash that muscle and say, does that provoke your symptoms? If so, very likely. And one of the challenges, have you ever seen a patient who's able to describe where their numbness and tingling is? When they come in, they say, when I wake up in the morning, my hand is numb. Well, which fingers? All five is the, always the answer. So we have to send them home with homework saying, you need to define which one. Is it the first three? Is it the middle finger? Is it the outer two? Is it the front or is it the back? And once we can determine what that is, and it could be all, but most likely it's going to be one subset, and that can help direct our care and, and get us on track a whole lot quicker. You know, I was trying to find, actually just Googled, uh, what are the 10 hardest words to spell in English? I, I think I actually would have gotten all of them. Um, so I can't, I'm, I'm definitely not going to get you on this. Um, however, let's just try. Uh, can you spell the word pharaoh? <laughs> like a pharaoh cat? No, no. Like a, a P-H-A-R-O-H. P-H-A-R, what did you say? I said it. What what would you say? P H A R O A H. O A H. Mm, so close. It's A O H. Uh, you were so confident in that too. And you know what? That's, that's I wasn't like, confident. I was quick. It was like <laughs> <laughs> like taking a rectal temperature. You just want it over. <laughs> uh, we're already over time. However, our first <laughs> our first office manager, uh, Debbie, uh, came in. When I, my first day of work here at Premier Rehab, and she said, uh, Dr. Steele, is there, is there anything that you need in your office to help you know you do your job? And I said, I need uh, you know, two things, but one of those was flavored gloves because I do a lot of work with uh, TMD, and that's actually how I started doing my, my, instead of doing MD marketing, I did dentist marketing. And she said, okay, didn't, didn't bat an eye, just ordered uh, two boxes of, of gloves, complained a little bit because they're like 70 bucks a piece. Um, and, uh, so she came back and, uh, maybe three months later, she said, what do you do with the flavored gloves? And I said, well, the prostate exams. And, uh, she kind of looked at me and kind of walked away. She wasn't going to say a word. Um, but uh, I let her know that, um, we do a little bit of work with uh, TMD now in the office. And that's been potent. I, Not the prostate exam, but the TMD work. That, well, I do it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> going out to Dennis has really, that's been, we see so many TMD, yeah. or you do, uh, so many TMD cases just because you've educated the dentist in the area that that's something that you can help with. We did we we did a webinar. I did a webinar on that, right? I think yes. that, yeah. So if you go to the homepage and you go to the resources tab, uh, you'll see a lot of webinars. There's some good ones. Um, they have my picture next to them, and there's some okay ones. Those are the ones that uh, that Tim does. Anyway, let's go dive back into this. Um, so blood flow, you know, kind of what we're getting into. Not even so much for this condition, but also all the other conditions is blood flow. And one of the things with any kind of peripheral neuropathy is that ischemic response of nerves. So unfortunately, when we have any kind of diminished perfusion of that median nerve at the uh, the wrist we start to see you know issues with um, that we call carpal tunnel syndrome uh, so think locally you know look locally and, and find out um, postures positions that could be causing it but also think of more systemic issues you know you kind of coronary artery disease uh, have less blood being pumped you know blood pressure isn't as high because of a systemic problem or heart issue um, so if you're seeing that, that that being the case in your physical exam, maybe make that referral out uh, sooner than later. Uh, so it's not enough blood good in the area. We also have conditions where we're getting too much blood 
into the area. Um, I, uh, pregnancy is one of those things that causes too much blood, or in this case, swelling. I mean, their blood volume nearly doubles in the third trimester. So it's still an ischemic response, but it's because we have so much compression from the blood volume doubling. Uh, so something to think about, and I, I always talk about the, the three Ps. The three Ps are the, the, the patient population that I Dis, not despise treating, but they're, they're different. And the first one is pregnancy because all rules are out in pregnancy. Um, the next one is post-surgical. They just don't follow the same rules as everyone else. And unfortunately, it's, it's tough. So pregnancy um, and post-surgical patients. And the last one are parents. Uh, when you're treating their kid, uh, you're also treating the parent. Uh, so three of the, 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 the three terrible P's that we treat in our office. Very good. I, I was wondering where that was headed, but I'm glad it turned out as it did. I love that study that you referenced that said that patients who have coronary artery disease were much more likely to have a history of carpal tunnel syndrome. And it's really not surprising that if your big vessels plug up at some point, that the small vessels would have plugged up sooner than that. One of the um, things that we'll do as part of our assessment, in addition to the history, uh, is figuring out, is it coming from the carpal tunnel or coming upstream? So certainly the nocturnal pain and the distribution of that numbness and tingling are crucial, but we'll use the standard tests like Tonell's sign and Phelan's and reverse Phelan's. Those are only about 50% sensitive for carpal tunnel syndrome. And Phelan's, we're going to have that patient stretch out the carpal tunnel and reverse Phelan's, uh, the, the same thing, to put, put some stretch and compression on the median nerve. But we can also do that with our fingers. That's certainly a manual carpal compression. Just 38 seconds of, of smashing the nerve, 30 seconds of smashing the nerve, seeing is there, is there a compression uh, neuropathy potential, and then a nerve tension test, which we'll get into this a little bit deeper later on. Uh, you'll be able to add the median nerve tension test to your repertoire and figure out what can we do to diagnose it, but more importantly, what can we do to teach this patient uh, how to manage it. And speaking of management, when we come back, we'll cover the six tools that we as chiropractors can use to manage carpal tunnel syndrome right after this quick break. Can't get enough of the information you hear on our podcast? You will absolutely love our platform. ChiroUp helps thousands of chiropractors across the globe simplify the way they practice using our online evidence-based software. It's your one-stop shop for powerful clinical research, simplified patient education, and smart practice resources. Visit ChiroUp.com, try it out for free. And if you'd like to subscribe, use referral code PODCAST15 for 15% percent off 12 monthly billing cycles. No contract required. Offer valid on new subscriptions only. All right, so let's dive into the management section of carpal tunnel syndrome. And like Dr. Burleson said, there are a couple tools that we can use in our back pocket. They're going to be significantly um, beneficial to, uh, to our patients to help get them out of their symptoms. The first is going to go through manipulation. Now, most of uh, the chiropractic populations, yes, you know, manipulation of the cervical spine and absolutely you know, manipulation of the cervical spine is going to significantly help people with carpal tunnel syndrome as most of these things are double crush injuries. Um, so 90%, you know, as far as, um, you know, anybody with carpal tunnel syndrome are going to have some kind of joint restrictions in the cervical spine. So let's go ahead and assess it. Let's go ahead and treat it. 
also consider even if they don't have a neck problem, make sure we assess the cervical spine. As chiropractors, we use motion palpation, we use static listings, whatever you use in your office is fine with me as long as we're assessing it and we're treating it. For those of you directional therapy gurus, that's another big thing is that a lot of times we're going to see an asymptomatic cervical spine create a peripheral problem. Uh, so we can also use directional therapy for both the assessment and the treatment of carpal tunnel syndrome directed towards the spine. If you have any questions on that, make sure you dive into the condition reference within ChiroUp on directional preference. Uh, as far as manipulation, um, I just think it's great. Uh, we're taking joints that are stiff, tight, not moving as much, and we're pulling them apart and we're getting them to move better. Um, so that doesn't mean we're just going to manipulate the cervical spine. We're also going to look down that chain. We're going to look at the elbow. We're going to look at the wrist and make sure that everything is moving. If you have any questions on how to perform extremity manipulation, mobilization, uh, we also have those things in Cairo up. Uh, take a look at that as far as treatment techniques, and uh, you'll have the ability to learn on the fly. You know, whatever you're looking to do, hopefully we have a resource for that. I can tell you right now, um, in all honesty, I would have dropped out of chiropractic school if it wasn't for MPI, which uh, Dr. Elder uh, has done a lot of our, our videos for. He's uh, integral in the, the formation and the, uh, the marketing and the expansion of MPI. But if you look at Motion Palpation Institute, their seminars now are not just for students. This is one of those things that uh, will help you grow as a provider. I was uh, forever indebted to Motion Palpation Institute. Uh, first trimester, I was uh, almost done with chiropractic school. I just wasn't getting what I wanted out of it. Um, and then I started attending these seminars. And it's not a philosophy. It's not a uh, treatment technique. It's just blending all the things that are out there and making sure we're providing the best treatment tools for our patients and education on a daily basis. So uh, I guess my, my ask in here is that uh, if you have any questions on getting your hands on people and performing manipulation, performing mobilization, take a look at one of their seminars. It might be for you. Yeah, that those skills are essential that there's plenty of data to say that manipulation of the neck and the elbow and the wrist do improve outcomes. So it's not that's not anecdotal evidence. That's hard science saying that manipulation works. The other thing that hard science says works are neurodynamic treatments. This is something that's really emerged over the past decade that Shacklock and Buck, Butler have been talking about these things for a while. And now they're really catching fire that we know that neurodynamic treatments are potent. We know that research shows that the median nerve actually loses mobility within the carpal tunnel in patients who have carpal tunnel syndrome. There are potentially microadhesions that are developing. And that's a problem. If a nerve can't stretch, or if a nerve is stretched too much, there's going to be ischemia, there's going to be numbness and tingling. That if you think of a nerve like a bungee cord that goes the entire length of a football field, and you step back 10 yards to the end of the end zone, that's no problem for the bungee cord. It can stretch that much. Well, your nerve is the same way, that it can tolerate up to 15% stretch without becoming ischemic. But once you get to that, that point, once you go from seven to 15% stretch, that's more than what the nerve can handle. And that means the nerve's going to become ischemic in that area. Think of it like this. Think of you stretching that bungee cord the whole length. But now instead of having the entire football field to stretch, somebody's standing on that at the 50-yard line or closer at your 20-yard line. Now when you step back, all of that stretch is happening between the end zone and the 20-yard line. That means more than 15% stretch. That means ischemia. 
So any of those types of adhesion cause a problem. They cause a traction ischemia, and the research is clear that manual therapy, those desensitization maneuvers with uh, median nerve glosses and median nerve fly, uh, glides are highly effective for patients. In fact, there's a study in JOSPT that said that those procedures are more effective than surgery in patients with carpal tunnel syndrome. Now, a podcast isn't the best way to describe exactly how to do a median nerve floss or median nerve glide. So I'd invite you to check out Cairo Up. If you go into the clinical skills section, you'll see dozens of median nerve flosses and glides, and you can take those tutorials in a minute or two, implement their, your practice. If you're not using them now, I guarantee they will be a game changer for your outcomes. And the game changer isn't just for you as the provider. Um, the, one of the biggest game-changing aspects of um, neurodynamics is how easy it is for a patient. And there, it's twofold. The first is it's easy for the patient to reproduce their symptoms. And that's always good because they know that you're on the right track with your exercises. So that's one piece. But the other piece is they're able to do it at home. You know, one of the biggest things that we do is provide motion. We have to do that. We catalyze that get things moving aspect of manual therapy. However, if your patients don't keep things moving, there's a problem. So nerve flossing uh, or nerve tension, depending on the condition and where the person is in their treatment plan, uh, has to be part of that patient's at-home exercise plan. It's simple to show them how to do the exercise. It's simple for them to do it. And there's a carrot there. The carrot is when they do it, they feel better. And the, there's a, a paper of 2019 that talked about not only acute aspects of neurodynamics, but also the long-term beneficial aspects. And it says that you start, you, well, you see pain reduction, symptom severity decrease, and strength improvement even six months after therapy. So they're still doing their exercise and keeping those nerves mobile that you get the acute and that long-term response with doing neurodynamics. So uh, once again, it's not just for you, it's for the patient and for their long-term success. And then we always think about passive modalities for any type of musculoskeletal problem. In general, we're not a big fan of passive modalities. The research says that things like ultrasound work pretty well compared to placebo. Uh, but one thing that may work a little bit better is shockwave therapy. That shockwave therapy has emerged in the market. It seems to have tremendous benefit for tendinopathies, those rotator cuffs and tennis elbows, golfer's elbows. But there's also been some data saying that for neuropathies, shockwave therapy works, and it works by driving in a shockwave into the tissue. This, this started out as lithotripsy to blow up kidney stones, and now it's uh, evolved into using it for the musculoskeletal market. So it does the same thing, just doesn't blow up the nerve. It stimulates a controlled inflammatory reaction to help increase blood flow to the nerve, and not surprisingly, anything that increases blood flow to the nerve is probably going to be helpful. And if you own a extracorporeal shockwave therapy company and you want me to review it, just send it to my office. I'll give you my address and we'd be happy to take a look at it in our office and review you on this podcast. They are quite expensive. Um, dry needling. You know, this is one of those treatments that um, I don't do. Uh, Tim, you don't do. However, our associate, Dr. Brown, does do. And I'm continually humbled uh, when I have a patient with a tendinopathy that's not getting better with uh, the things that I'm doing for the patient. And I'll send them over to Dr. Brown. He does the dry needling. I follow up with some manual therapy and some, uh, some rehab. 
and then it's the magic tool. And I don't know you use the word magic, but we're creating that controlled inflammatory reaction. There's a paper in European uh, Journal of uh, Orthopedic Surgery and Traumatology, I think it was 2021, that talked about this, that dry needling was even better than PRP um, or steroid injections, uh, which is kind of interesting uh, because dry needling is pro-inflammatory. PRP is pro-healing. Injections is anti-inflammatory. So they kind of went the gamut as, as far as how to, to treat someone. I would say this is that if you are looking to create a controlled inflammatory reaction and uh, bring the body aware of something needs to be healed, dry kneeling seems to be a really good option for your practice. Um, once again, if that's not you, that doesn't mean the patient doesn't deserve it. You know, it's one of those things that we have to provide the patient with what they need, not necessarily what we offer. Uh, one of the things that I talk about uh, a lot is nutrition. Uh, do, I, do I work on nutrition with patients? Absolutely not not in my skill set. Does that mean a lot of patients don't need it? Uh, they, they, they do. Uh, so find someone in your area that can do more functional medicine. Find another chiropractor in your area that can do that. Uh, it helps build uh, that intra-professional relationships, uh, keeps you focused on what you're great at, and uh, hopefully refer out for the, for the other stuff. Yeah, and make sure you're referring out to the patient too, that you're making them a participant in their recovery. One of the things that we want to make sure is that that patient is not kinking the carpal tunnel all night long, that there are a number of studies that said that when a patient has a non-neutral posture, there's a decreased carpal tunnel volume, which means there's going to be impingement of the median nerve. So wearing a brace at nighttime, a wrist splint in a neutral position is effective. The American Family Physician said that's one of the four or five braces that really does work pretty well. I was going to say something about being kinky at night, but didn't think it was appropriate for this podcast. Um, I'd go with just the HIPAA violations for now. So, <laughs> um, you know, as far as bracing, one of the interesting things about that carpal tunnel brace is that's actually what I use for uh, lateral epicondylitis. Uh, which is interesting because if you create uh, compression with a counterforce brace at the lateral epicondyle, it can create radial tunnel syndrome. So instead, I use this brace, uh, which prevents wrist flexion and extension um, and does not create any kind of nerve compression um, at the elbow. Uh, the last treatment is something that we do not do in our office. Um, however, we can't leave this out. You know, one of the things that uh, I, I'll hear at a seminar is I've tried everything. That means maybe you've tried everything, you know, as far as myself included in office. Uh, that doesn't mean there's other things that don't work. Now, here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to talk about surgery. That doesn't mean that all of our patients need to go to surgery. In fact, we, there's no significant uh, difference between surgical and non-surgical uh, responses to patients at 3 to 12 months um, for having carpal tunnel syndrome uh, surgery versus not. Um, however, there is one difference is that if someone is having a neurologic insult that's creating progressive neurologic deficit, we need to be able to refer this person to someone. Whether they have surgery or not, that's not up to, it's not really up to you. Uh, it's up to the patient and what they want to do. But getting them the hand, in the hands of a surgeon to at least give them that option. Um, in severe cases of carpal tunnel syndrome, surgery may be necessary to relieve that pressure on the nerve. It is what it is. Uh, but in the absence of red flags, in the absence of progressive neurologic deficit, there is one thing that I learned from a, a friend who's an orthopedic surgeon is this. Surgery is reserved for people who want it. Uh, and there's no difference when it comes to these kind of cases. 
Yeah, that's. I find that those mild and moderate cases of carpal tunnel syndrome typically respond really well to some manual therapy, to some nerve glides and nerve flosses manipulation. When people get into that severe range where now there may be some atrophy of the thenar eminence, those are the ones that just don't seem like they respond as well. I'm certainly going to get an orthopedist stamp of approval on that one to manage it since, since we're already seeing a neurologic deficit of atrophy. But those are the ones that are typically going to move on. Uh, what, what do you find as far as the prognosis? How well do your carpal tunnel syndrome patients do? Well, I actually checked my outcomes in the in Cairo up. So if you go to admin and go to provider stats, and I'm actually a, a tick lower than the actual average, uh, which is 78%. Um, and this is one of those things that uh, is interesting because when you can really dive into your outcomes, you can see what you're great at. You can see what you're not great at. We were at a seminar a couple of weeks ago with one of the providers who uh, – literally kills it. I mean, he has the highest outcomes uh, for a couple conditions. And one of the things that I learned from him is that, um, and I I hope this doesn't come off derogatory, he doesn't do anything better or worse than what I do. Uh, But he does do one thing that has nothing to do with uh, manual therapy that's much better than what I do. And that's education. He spends more time educating his person, his person, his patient, on their condition than I do. Uh, so that's something I took away from that visit. And I said, you know what? Uh, I'm going to work on spending more time educating my patients on their condition, so they can understand their condition just as well as I do to help bring up my clinical results. Because we measure these things every 30 days to figure out what we're good at and what we're not good at. When it comes to nerve symptoms, man. Uh, there's not a number. There's not a linear response. Uh, when you look at the averages for your acute cases, it could be a couple weeks, it uh, could be a couple months, or much longer if they don't get the uh, the uh, the appropriate care. You know, listen, if you break your uh, femur, um, <laughs> it's not going to get better in a week. It's not going to get better in two weeks. It's going to be six to even 12 weeks for a femur, but a typical bone, six weeks. Uh, the same with nerves. It takes four to six weeks for these things to calm down. Even if you have surgical decompression of a nerve, it takes um, a couple weeks. So keep that in mind for you and your patients. We want to make sure we don't give them false hope. So one of the things you you had alluded to that we measure that uh, we have 2,500 providers now in our network throughout the world in 16 countries. And so thank you for being part of that network. Thank you for growing that vision to make our profession the undeniable best choice for patients and payers. That's our mission. Our mission is not to have an exercise program, to have a doctor education program. It's to advance our profession. And together we're making that happen. One of the ways that we do that is by measuring how well we perform that when people use the recipes, how well do they do? So out of those surveys, the 660,000 surveys from last year, we measured how well on average do our patients respond. And we know that network-wide that within 30 days, patients have a 78% improvement. So we can see four-fifths of their symptoms go away for that patient who's awakened every night and has trouble sleeping, which is, as we know, dramatically impacting their quality of life there is definitely a difference. So if you've not checked out the protocol uh, for carpal tunnel, make sure you check it out. It's not something that was written eight years ago. It's rewritten literally on a weekly basis anytime there's new data. So let's dive in, you know, let's, let's, I guess dive in. Let's jump into the last section of this podcast. We're already at 44 minutes. This has been a longer one, a lot of um, uh, more personal experience and, uh, and banter that goes back and forth. Um, however, this is one that I learned a long time ago from a mentor, and I, I think I want to share it with you, uh, that I think when it comes to especially these long-term, long-term, these longer-to-treat diagnoses, 
that we have to have short-term wins for the patient. And so one of the ways that I do that to keep the patient involved in their care, to make sure they're happy with their care and we're moving in the right direction is I don't set the expectation. Um, I can lead the expectation with their diagnosis and how long this may treat. But one thing that I learned a long time ago is ask your patient for their expectations. You may be surprised what they expect. They may not expect to be out of pain in one visit. They may expect it's going to take a longer time. They may expect that they may still have some lower back pain when they walk uh, you know, out of your office, uh, but they want to walk around Target for a little bit longer. They want to uh, throw a baseball to their grandson. So make sure you ask your patients for their expectations and that first visit and during your reevaluations to make sure that you guys are on the same page. And setting those expectations based upon that patient's willingness to participate in their recovery. That uh, we just uh, released a two-part blog series, which you can check out in the Cairo blog. If you're not a subscriber, make sure you do that. On every Monday, you'll get the blog in your inbox. And uh, our survey, we surveyed our, our subscribers for what are the six most frustrating types of patients and how do you deal with these. We had more than a thousand pieces of advice that have come in and we summarized those into the two blogs as far as what do you do for the patient who skips appointment? What about the patient who's just never going to be happy? And what about the patient who overdoes it? But really one of those frustrating patients was the underachiever, the person who you just can't motivate to perform their exercises. And one of the best pieces of advice was set those expectations based upon how the patient is willing to participate. Let them know that, look, for this condition, carpal tunnel syndrome, I think that I can probably get you 50% better short term. I'm not sure that that will last long term. If you're willing to help me by doing some home exercises and potentially wearing this brace, I think we can get to 90 to 100% improvement with this condition and it would be long term. So your recovery is going to be based upon how you participate. It's your choice. I'll treat you either way, but let me know how you'd like to proceed. And establishing those guidelines from the beginning lets the patient know this is not a passive game. You're an active player. You need to get on the field and you need to contribute. You know what's so interesting? Uh, I won't even bring up her name because that, I mean, we can't have three Yeah, our fines are building up at this point. You sent me a patient about a month ago. You're treating for back pain, but she also has some jaw pain. And she came in, she said, I'm here to see you for jaw pain, you know, to, to get an evaluation. So I do an evaluation with her, and I know she's already under care with you. And I said, listen, here's the deal. I'm just going to give you the at-home exercise. I'm going to educate your, educate you on your condition, and I want you to do this for, uh, for 30 days. And by that time, you'd be done with your care. And I said, let's see how it goes, man. Just, just do the, the, the at-home stuff. Now, if it's not better, I want you to come back in to see me, and I'm going to help get, you know, get this to go away. However, the goal is for you to get it to go away yourself. Um, I don't want to be here treating you. I want you to solve this problem yourself. Now, unfortunately, she did have to come back in. She was still having some symptoms. However, at that point, she knows that I gave her all the pieces of information, and she wasn't able to solve it herself. And she also knows that if that wasn't going to work, I was going to be able to help her. So now she came back in. She wants to be in, and now we can get in our treatment plan. I need to loosen stuff, you know, treat that myogenous part of TMD. She's going to continue doing the exercise and we're going to get her out of pain. But, you know, it's kind of interesting when you, when you bring that up that um, she tried, she couldn't solve it. And now she knows she needs help. I'm a safe place to fail. You know, I'm not here to say, oh, you failed, you know, now you need me. Uh, but instead, you know, be there if the patient needs you. Yeah. And she also trusts you because she knows that you were not interested in seeing her a few extra visits. You were interested in helping her get better. So it's like that patient who doesn't get better and you release them saying, I'm not the person for you. They can't wait to get back, wait to, uh, to have a new complaint. 
And speaking of new stuff, we've got a couple of new things in Cairo up that you'll be able to access your plus and premium materials that we know that we need a social media presence and that's tough to do to have somebody write a post and post it every day well fortunately there's a product that can allow you to post that instantly uh, automatically on your facebook or instagram pages and that's the plus subscription we also have newsletters if you'd like to communicate with MDs, attorneys, and patients, we provide a monthly newsletter uh, package that allows you to communicate with those. And one of the new uh, things that we have is related to those two blogs, the six most frustrating patients. And this one has to do with the overachiever, the one who breaks the 10% rule. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Constantly breaking the 10% rule as far as doing more than what you need them to do. That uh, They don't understand that. And that's something that takes us a little time to educate. So we've tried to speed that up because we know the only thing we have to sell is our time. So if we can give that patient an infographic that explains to them, hey, here's the 10% rule, here's how you should escalate. We know you want to get back to full activity, but you've got to start slowly. So go to the forms library and search for the 10% rule and you'll find that. And probably most importantly, thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed listening to the episode, either one of us, uh, we'd encourage you to follow it. Uh, for uh, us, we'd encourage you to share it with a friend and we'd encourage you to review it so that we can continue to grow grow. And by sharing this knowledge, by sharing uh, your ideas, along with our ideas, we will continue to advance the profession. We're proud to be on that journey with you. Thanks for listening, and we'll look forward to connecting next time. Hey, thanks for listening. To access more information, visit ChiroUp.com. You can sign up for a 14-day trial. Use referral code PODCAST15 for a special discount after your trial. Offer valid on new subscriptions only.